0: Mike Brearley is one of the finest minds associated with cricket. His brilliance has carried over to post-cricketing careers such as psychoanalysis and writing books. Uh, He's someone, we all know, who can decompose complex matters and thoughts into something simple and and also has a rare ability to simplify simple things. And I got a rare opportunity to speak with him on his upcoming book, Spirit of Cricket, which is going to hit the shelves August 27th uh this conversation was very candid very insightful as usual try to grab a copy of the book i know i will and enjoy the podcast hello everyone welcome to another episode of cricket with an accent this is your host sakib ali uh today we'll be having a special guest to talk about cricket and its impact on our lives uh most of us spend Our lifetime uh, achieving something significant in a career, but some are uh, gifted enough to excel in more than one career. And today's guest is, uh, uh, how do I even introduce him? So I'll just, you know, stick to the strengths. He's one of the most decorated cricketers of all time, arguably the finest cricket captain England has seen. And now he's authored uh, many books that reflect cricket and lead a path into life. So let me uh, introduce, with great honor, uh, Mr. Mike Rarely. Welcome to the show, sir.
1: Thank you, Sakeem.
0: So again, uh, this is not an exercise to unpack something new because you've spoken at many forums. uh, The fans and the listenership know about you. But a standard question of this show is, uh, what is your earliest association of the game? And more importantly, when did you know that you have the leading traits, leading capabilities? Uh, So just walk us through your first memories as captain at maybe boy level, club level, or school level?
1: Well, my first contact with cricket was through my father, who was a very good amateur cricketer. Played once for Yorkshire with Len Hutton and uh, various other people against Middlesex, actually, Compton and Hedrich in the 30s, when Yorkshire were the best team in the country, and he'd played for three years for Yorkshire Seconds. And then after the war, when we lived in London, Middlesex or London, Uh, He played um, for Middlesex. That was my father. I used to go around with my father and get him to bowl at me or bat against me in the back garden or on the beach at Bognor, where we went on holiday. Um, I learnt a great deal about cricket from him, Um, and uh, you know he set me on on this path and he he brought me up in this tradition. He was a Yorkshireman, as I said, and he he had a Yorkshire attitude. I would say he was quite stubborn. He was quite Interested in tactics as well as in style or you know proper play and discipline cricket and so on, and um you know he taught me a great deal so that was and and well, I became school cricket captain when i well I think I have captained the under thirteens or something, but then I was in the school team for the from the age of fourteen till eighteen, I think for five years, and captain for the last two years, so I captained then. And then I was lucky enough to go to Cambridge. So I played against professional players. The first match was against Surrey with um, John Edrich, uh, Peter May, Ken Barrington, uh, Peter Loder, uh, Eric Bedser. I don't know, great names like that. And the second was against Yorkshire with Fred Truman Bowling. And and in my third and fourth years at Cambridge, I was captain there. So I suppose those were the times I really had the opportunity first off.
0: Sure. So let's get into leadership right away. Uh, again, in my humble view, leadership is much larger than captaincy as it applies to many facets of life. We yes. can say captaincy is a subset of leadership. I can be totally, totally. wrong here, but I see...
1: Totally right.
0: But I see captaincy as knowing tactical nuances of the game and its players to read the game and help making sound decisions, whereas leadership is an exercise of man management, motivation, and influencing others to get the job done. Uh, which of the two traits is more important in your view
1: to no, successfully I, I,
0: captain a test side?
1: I mean, I, well, or a county side, or a professional side, yes. or, or a good side. Uh, I, I divide it the way you do. I divide it into two. I, div- I mean, the role of captaincy, including leadership. Uh, and I think they're pretty much equally important. I and mean, if you can't, if you're not very good at tactics, you're going to struggle. However good a person you are and how good a leader. You know, there are a great number of tactical decisions that are made every hour, really, or certainly, you know, every session of play. And if you don't know your way through those and have interesting, uh, both disciplined ideas and interesting innovative ideas, I think, you won't get very far. Um, And some people are more the one more and others are more the other. And then alongside that, as you rightly say, there are all the qualities of getting the best out of other people, uh, converting a group of oddball people and players into a team, and those two things involve motivation, leadership, understanding, empathy, challenge, willingness to challenge, uh, provocativeness. Sometimes you know you provoke someone to do better, or you or you put your arm around them and you have to have some idea when, when to do each of those things. It involves group leadership and individual, you know, a role with individuals. So I think it's a very, it's a fascinating job. And one of the things...
0: If I may inter- intervene here, I read the part of Captaincy and there was an incident when you admitted that you read the pitch wrong and you left Embury out and then you apologized to him later on. In this day and age... That kind of open communication, maybe it happens a lot. A captain apologizing to a player. How important is that to lead a group of players when you're so transparent? Okay, I made a mistake. Let's move on.
1: Well, I think it is important. To, or, or sometimes it's not that you made a mistake, but look, I'm not sure that was right. You know, because yeah. as a matter of fact, it's all very well to post to guess. You know, to guess afterwards. Uh, what's it called? Second guessing after the result is known. But even then, you don't know that it might have been even worse if you'd done the other thing. So very often you don't know. And it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a role where you can be 100% sure you're right on any particular decision. And many decisions, you know, you come to a fork in the road and it would be quite reasonable to take either of two decisions. But yes, I do think that some humility a captain is important you also have to have some confidence in yourself of course I mean a humility comes, comes in saying sorry and I got it wrong and you know I was uh, or I was unreasonable to you and I'm sorry I spoke to you like that when I I lost it a bit or I was very tactless in speaking to you like that it was something of this kind
0: and, and I'm sure there saying, was one incident and does the feedback what happens after that embryo or others does it build the bridge I mean the bond stronger
1: I think it does. I think it does. We're all we're all um, we all make mistakes and and also as I say some things that are categorized as mistakes may not be and some things that are categorized as, as great successes may be just more luck than judgment you know. Sure. So I think we have to there has to be a certain modesty and a certain willingness to to not not stay on your high horse.
0: Absolutely. Another one of my, again, uh, pet questions is, and this is again a larger question, it comes from the Indian subcontinent background, comparing to the English system. In the book you've mentioned, fast bowlers are least likely candidates to captain a That's your view. But what is the whole English view? Why have we not seen more bowlers or more all-rounders to captain, whereas in India and Pakistan, we've seen the likes of Bedi, Imran, Kapil, Wasim Akram, Kumbhle. Is it a cultural difference how the two cultures read the game, or what is it? That does not meet you know, the
1: novice eye. I, I. It's very interesting. I haven't thought, you know, I haven't thought, I didn't, if you'd asked me, were there more bowlers as captains from the Indian subcontinent, because you mentioned Wasi Makran as well, um, I, I wouldn't have, I would have had to think, you know, and work it out. So I hadn't, I hadn't considered that question. I suppose that there are, I've got two things to say about it. One is that, um, there's been a class element in English cricket. I think there was an Indian cricket too, mind you, but there has been a class element in English cricket in which traditionally the amateurs were batsmen, not always, but often, and traditionally the bowlers were professionals. You know, the bowlers did the sweaty labour.
0: the factory workers.
1: You see, and, and the batsmen did the graceful, elegant thing, standing there with the bat in their hand. And so I think there was a class element in it. You know for a long time and there probably still echoes of that
0: and the decision and, makers were batsmen too sorry
1: the decision makers yes. well, the captain,
0: I mean. yeah the selectors and the oh yes exactly authorities yeah
1: i agree yeah. entirely that's a, a part of the same yes i agree with you uh, but and secondly i think that when it comes to fast bowling there is an intrinsic difficulty you know that you have to bowl with full adrenaline you have to bowl flat out it is very hard work it I think it's extremely hard or it's harder to captain the side as a fast bowler to be able to stand back from it enough to see what's going on both in your own play and other people's uh, and to be engaged enough passionately involved enough to bowl flat out and fast and sometimes in a hostile way I mean, I mean properly hostile i mean aggressively so i think it is difficult i mean i think um who's the, who's there been has been really good captains as fast spoilers perhaps wasi McGram, though i uh, i think he was a good motivator and i think he was an inspiring leader i wasn't Run. always about his tactics but then that's i didn't know it well enough to make a very short judgment. Kapil Dev, I didn't really know his captaincy well. He was captain after I stopped playing. Um, Who else were the fast bowlers who've done well as captains? Imran Khan. Um, Imran Khan. Was an old owner? I was talking about, I meant to say that about what I said about Wasim Akram. I was thinking of Imran. Um, And Wasim Akram I knew even less of as a captain. Though he's a, very engaging man as a commentator and I'd met him and, and so is well, so is Imran for that matter as a as a person. So so yes, those two come in the same category. I don't really know enough, but they may well have done. Mike Proctor, possibly, but I don't know how much he did it at a high level. Um he was a good captain in county cricket. Yes. Um Bob Willis was a good motivator, but I thought he was a better number two than a number than a captain. He was an extremely good uh, backer up for me and for other people as vice captain, uh, and he would be willing to say unpopular things to people. And he would be tough, and he would be straightforward, and he he, he would be a very useful person to have alongside. I mean, I think Ben Stokes and Ian Botham were like that actually. Uh, and I don't know about Ben Stokes as a captain. I don't think anyone does yet. But Ian Botham, I think was a bit disappointing as a captain, though he'd had so little experience and he captained almost all his test matches against the West Indies when they were easily the best team in the world. So, um, and and some of the better captains have been all-rounders, of course, and you might say Richie Benno and Ray Ellingworth come to mind immediately. Brian Close to some extent. Um, not really Ian Chappell or Greg Chappell, but I thought they were good captains. Um, who else should I be thinking of Frank Worrell I think he was well Derek Murray the key keeper for West Indies for so long said he was the best captain he ever saw and and, you know he he must have been a very fine man and a very fine captain you know to carry that weight of expectation on his shoulders for the West Indies at that time and become such a, a revered and respected person in cricket and leader in cricket I think he must have been a very fine captain. i played against him a couple of times, Frank Worrell, and uh, he was very, very gracious and nice man, but I didn't really know enough. And I saw uh, the last day at Lords when West Indies won. It was drawn, with England needing six runs to win and Cowdery standing at a non-striker's end with his arm in plaster and Wes Hall bowling from ten past one to half past six without a break except for tea. So, you know, I saw Frank Warrell on the field in that. I sort of a Sort of island of calm in a maelstrom of activity and excitement and, and, and tension, and he seemed to just sort of take sure. it, yeah. So, anyway, that's some of my thoughts about fast bowlers as captains.
0: No, that's that's uh, uh quite the unpacking. So, let's uh, move to another favorite topic of mine and a lot of fans. Um, you are someone who does not glorify the past like most ex cricketers to an extent that belittles the present. With that being said. Do you think uh, that in today's game it's very player-driven? I'm referring to the star culture that has ascended over the last few decades. Players are literally dictating terms off the field. How do you see uh, that development?
1: You know, I don't know if you're talking from a, an Indian perspective on that too.
0: Well, most of it is yes.
1: I don't. I don't think in England. One, w- I would say that that wouldn't come to my mind at all to say that about English cricket. And I haven't been that close to the top level of English cricket. I've written on the game. I've done a bit of administrating, especially in the last uh, 12 or 13 years. Um, I've been, uh, you know, I was a captain for 20, uh, 12 years, and for Middlesex and four years for England. Uh, but since I stopped playing, I didn't have that much close contact. But I would never have described English cricket as player-led. No, so, and, and and star, you're not quite as much of a star in England as you are in India, for sure, if you're a top cricketer, though someone like Botham or Stokes or Flintoff for a while were came close to that category, I suppose.
0: They're still so getting, I,
1: don't, I, sorry. I don't see that as an, as an issue in English cricket. It may well make it things much more complicated and difficult in India, you know, both for both parties in a way, because the the level of expectation on the captain is so huge. And and the level of glorification and then knocking someone off their pedestal is so intense and dramatic very often. For someone like Tendulkar or, I mean, someone who took it really soberly and marvellously well, I thought was Rahul Dravid, you know, who was a very, very, very fine cricketer, um, but always remained modest and, I think Tendulkar too, but in a different way. So, yes. I, so I, you know, I don't really follow what you... I don't really agree with what you. the premise of your question.
0: So, uh, sure enough. So let's just uh, bring Stokes' captaincy. Like you said, you don't know much about it, but do you think that's from the Indian playbook? A superstar or star was made captain with no previous track record of leading?
1: Well, I think that's always a risk. And I think you could say that about the three... Best English all-rounders of the last forty-five years, um, seventy-seven, forty. Yes, virtually 40, well, say forty-five years, except for Tony Gregg, by the way. But um, both them, uh, Flintoff and Stokes, or both both them and Flintoff. I'd say that their own play got less powerful and potent when they were captaining and I don't think they quite knew as well as some people might have done how to bring everyone together as a team though they were all totally unselfish cricketers they were full of good ideas I think I certainly know that about Ian Botham and you know they probably needed a lot a bit of help and I don't know whether they got enough of that at the time. Stokes we just don't know about I think he's a terrific he's got you know as I've thought for a long time, including when he was in trouble, I thought, you know, he's the sort of man you would, any captain would love to have at his side. You know, he's totally wholehearted. He's a tremendous trier. He works hard at his game. He's got enormous talent and flair in all departments of the game. He's a brilliant fielder, catcher. He's a, you know, his bowling is not quite as good as Botham's, but his batting is better. And he's a tremendous cricketer. So... I'd like to think he could do it, but it's asking a very great deal. Sure. Read
0: that one. It it makes sense. So let's uh, talk about a book that's coming out. Uh, Your next book is called Spirit of Cricket. Uh, What triggered this book? I know you delivered a lecture, the Colin Cowdrey lecture last year. So what are the reasons for this kind of a book? Was this in your uh, backlog for a while? Uh, Please walk us through that process.
1: Um. Well, I was I was honoured and pleased to be asked to give the talk at Lords last summer, last May, and um, um, as I uh, I delivered it, and there were six hundred people there, which was quite a large audience, and it seemed to go down all right. And I got interested in it, in writing it, and of course I've been thinking about it in various ways over the previous fifty or sixty years, maybe even seventy, uh, at a pinch, and. As I walked round the ground at Lords, from the place where it was held in the nursery ground to the pavilion where there was a, a dinner afterwards for, for, to celebrate it, um, I met my editor, who's called Andreas Campermar, uh, from Little Brown Books, and my agent, who's called Matthew Hamilton, who'd come to the, I'd invited to the lecture, and they both said to me, "Why didn't you write a book about it?" And I think one of their One of their ideas was, if he doesn't write a book on that, he might write an incomprehensible book about psychoanalysis or something like that, but they weren't so keen on. Anyway, they said that, and I thought, well, actually, I would like to do that. And so that was where the the seed of a book was planted. And I could use things that I'd spoken about in the talk, of course, but expand it and develop in, in different directions. And what I hope it is, is it's an account of, a bit, a bit of an account of the formal preamble to the laws, which is which is about the spirit of cricket, which is a little, you know, few paragraphs at the beginning before the laws. And it's a comparison between them and the laws themselves. And it's also about the spirit of cricket as embodied and in-minded in people playing the game on maidans in bombay on streets in west indies on beaches in west indies and the north country towns again up against a wall with stumps painted on the wall as well as in public schools and great stadiums and comfortable clubs and all that so and everyone has their values in the game you know and they, so it's not it's not primarily something from imposed or you know preached from up down from top to bottom, as it were, from above to below, it's something that's you know like my father, who was the eighth child of a mill mill engineer in Yorkshire, you know and who loved cricket and he played they played against very strong it was very strong ethics with the game, so I think the spirit of the cricket is important, but it isn't a superior thing. it used to be used in that way, you know with the empire and uh, you know the great anglo-saxon virtues of character and the people you know from public schools and universities being educated to go and rule the empire and have the values of cricket and so on it was all built up in that way which i don't like but i think it's changed a very great deal since then and the mcc has changed a very great deal since then so that now it's a much more i don't know quite what the right word is but integral to people's attitudes and so what I wanted to do was put into words some of the aspects of this spirit and another complaint against the spirit of cricket is that it doesn't answer specific questions you know like whether you should walk or not or whether it's it's whether it's uh, in the spirit of cricket to run out a batsman who's backing up too far you know mankading it's called Rather unfairly on Vinny should I have been
0: browned, as <laughs> exactly, <said. laughs>
1: that was the comment of, of that was yes. Gavaska's comment, which I quote yes. in the book. Yes, yeah, indeed, indeed. And um, uh, sorry, what was I going to say? Um, oh, okay, so I'm also interested. So, so yes, it doesn't answer those questions. It's much more about an orientation, an attitude to the game, to the to the. Values of the game to one's own team players, to the opposition, to the umpires, um, sometimes indeed even to the captain up to a point. I don't think that respect should be given um, without being earned, but I think you should, you should give the person the benefit of the chance to start with. Um, I think the possibility of argument and discussion is important as part of the spirit of the game. Um, I'm not in favour of people who simply follow every custom without questioning it. I like the decision review system, which, you know, the Indian board opposed for many years, partly on the grounds that it was questioning the umpire's decision. I don't think, I think it's wrong. I think there should be a legitimate and respectful way of questioning a decision. Um, and then get you get off the field once that has been gone through. Just as you can appeal a decision in a court of law, you've, right. you could, you know, it's like an appeal. Yes. And, and I agree with there being a limit to the numbers of such appeals. So I got interested in the spirit, the relation to the law, um, the relation to maxims in religion you know like do unto others as you would have them do unto you that doesn't answer specific questions but it it sets you along a path towards a general orientation which is a moral orientation and play hard but play fair seems to me a good slogan
0: Uh, Yeah, on that note, uh, in the book, you devote a nice part of a chapter talking about uh, Kane Williamson, Brendan McCullum, and the nice guy culture that's prevalent in the New Zealand team, Mm -hmm. especially the ability to handle both imposters, if you take from Rudyard Kipling's poem, Defeat and Triumph, Mm -hmm. in a very dignified manner. Now, Mike, can that be taught at the elementary level? Or more importantly, can that be cool with the new young audience of the game?
1: I, would, I wouldn't be surprised. I would think it's probably more close to their hearts than one might guess. That That's my feeling, that when it comes down to it, they would often have a feeling for the opposition. You know, once you've won, you don't gloat, you know? And I think you, 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 they would be aware of that. Of course, it depends on mentors, people who show by example. And one of the things about... And and I don't think the spirit of the game is all about being nice. I think it's also about fighting hard. It's about being aggressive in a in a freer sort of way. And Brendan McCullum whom you mentioned, and I mentioned in the book several times, and um, said he he thought he'd gone the wrong way in cricket. This was about 1912 19. 19- 13 and he became captain about 14 or I think 20 20, 20, 2012 and he became captain and he said we'd lost he himself personally and the New Zealand team had lost their link with what had drawn them to the game in the first place which was love of playing cricket and he said if you if that's central to your play then you can take more risks you think of what's positive you you go for something um so it's not just a matter of being a good loser it's a matter of being uh full hearted in your play and um putting the love of the game and of playing it well as well as properly at the head of things rather than simply or narrowly success or humiliation, avoiding humiliation or triumphing over somebody. so I think that it's more it's a broader category than simply being a nice guy. And so I think that people of every generation can understand something of that.
0: Absolutely. And then you also spent some time in the same chapter about the Sandpaper Gate, where yes. uh, life, like you said, rightfully, cricket is life because everybody deserves a second chance. But there were a lot of critics, a lot of fans who were very harsh on the yes. Australian trio coming back. So your thoughts on that kind of redemption and has, yes. and has your thoughts changed initially when this happened two years ago? three years ago. Uh,
1: no, I thought that also three years ago when it happened. Um, well, I wanted to I, I point out about the sandpaper issue, that the tariff for the ICC disciplinary committees and so on for tampering with the ball or using an instrument on the ball to help you, which is a form of cheating. It goes against the rules. The tariff was, um, I think, maximum... One test banning, you know, ban for one test match or two or three one day internationals or something at that level. And that's what the ICC initially did with those, with two of them. They didn't accuse uh, Warner at the first place, they accused Smith as captain and uh, Bancroft as the man who was doing a sandpaper. And so that shows that it was considered on a par with swearing at somebody on the field or on a par with, it wasn't a major sin. And the thing that stirred everyone up in Australia, especially in Australia, and it was the Australian board that banned them for a year or nine months. And the, the thing that stirred people up were was one that they planned it in the tea interval, two that um, they uh, got the jun- junior player to do the dirty work, as it yeah. were, and three that they three that they were not very honest when they were first challenged about it. They tried to evade it in various ways and but most important of all, I think was the Australian public had got disillusioned with the team already, and this was a straw because of their boorishness i mean they've been uh, i don't mean i don't mean necessarily they they possibly i wouldn't be surprised if they did use uh, affect the ball, but then that a lot of people have done that in the history of the game, but the main thing were that their Sledging got at times pretty intolerable, and their attitude on the field was, and off the field sometimes, was not very attractive. And I think um, there was a bit of a decline in international cricket because other other sides started to retaliate against them. I think the English side has never been so uh, holy, can sometimes be holier than now. But the Indians and the Pakistanis and the British, the English all uh, South Africans certainly all got I think there was a bit of I think this didn't help the whole atmosphere for a while and so these things became a bit more prevalent or these attitudes became a bit more prevalent and that was why the penalties to those people were severe not not mild they were severe to be banned for a year was a severe and to be humiliated nationally and internationally were severe punishments so I thought they'd served their term they should be welcomed back I don't mean you should never tease them about it or you know have a go at them about it in some way or other Um, (laughs) and they're going to live with that the rest of their lives but nevertheless they should you should get on with the game and let them have a second chance
0: it's interesting you said the decline so again my thoughts are this culture was prevalent but this Australian side was not as dominant so sometimes winning hides certain loopholes or certain ugly behaviors so you think that's a combination of that Maybe this was happening during the War Ponting era too, but this team wasn't as dominant, and this this cheating scandal broke the camel's back.
1: Well, I I thought that I think I think that they were it was less dominant with War and Ponting, but it was always a bit rough, put it that way. Alan Border was possibly the first, you know, that uh, series though. Ian and Greg Chappell were pretty tough captains too, back in the 70s and early 80s. Um, yes, that's right. Australia's always had a tough culture, but it's usually been, a, and it usually is, a very straightforward culture. You don't walk, but if you're given out, you get off the field. If you, the batsman nicks it and is given not out, you get on and bowl the next ball. You don't show up the umpire, you don't do tantrums on the field. You don't, um, you have a, might have a go at the opposition, you know you're a bit rough with your words but it's not necessarily malicious and west indians say nothing on the field what the indians and pakistanis are saying on the field we often can't understand (laughs) the british are somewhere in between sometimes they say things sometimes they're a bit snide sometimes they're a bit hypocritical you know you're quicker to complain about other people and we do similar things ourselves so none of us are saints in this matter in my opinion. Absolutely. And it's a rough, and it's a tough game. I mean, not rough necessarily, but tough. It's a tough career. You have a short career. You you lose form. You can be out of it. There's a difference between being at the top and being just below the top is quite big, especially recently as the money's got better for top players. Um, you know, and you can get an injury. Your whole career can be cut short. You can't expect people to behave like at a Vickers. Tea Party
0: absolutely, so that brings me to another facet which you already mentioned of uh, spirit of cricket walking uh, in my mm. limited cricket exposure, I was the tailender or the beginning of the tail, and I've walked a couple of times and I got the wrath of my teammates because the game was poised. So how is walking treated at professional level, county level if a batman batsman walked as a coach or the management let him hear about it you ruined the game if there was so much at stake or is it considered a professional token and that's your territory nobody crosses that path
1: in county cricket when i played and i think a lot of the time since though it may have changed more than i know in county cricket when i played the general expectation was that you would walk yeah? if you knew you'd hit it you walked if you knew the ball would bounce, you didn't claim a catch. Certainly that, I think, is still pretty strong. Um, and um, in test cricket, when I played, um, the ethos of the English team was largely that you didn't walk. That most test countries didn't walk. And that this, if you played the Australians, for example, they certainly didn't. Uh, and you didn't expect them to. Um, and um, you know, it was a pretty. There was, there were a lot of grey areas. Actually, I think the decision review system has improved matters because now you're nearly always you, 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 you can find out who's hit it and who hasn't. You know better than sometimes than the umpire on the field can know um, because of the TV replays and the you know that little quivering thing that shows whether the bat has touched the the ball has touched the bat. So I think that and in county cricket you could get you could become pretty unpopular if you didn't walk. And it it created bad feeling between teams on the field. And so that was also tended to make walking more prevalent because, you know, there would be retaliation, there would be accusations of cheating. If the umpire gave somebody out when he hadn't walked, the umpire seemed to be accusing him of cheating. You see, it was a very... I've got a lot of time for not walking. I mean, I, I think... It's more straightforward in a way. You get the rough with the smooth, you st- provided you don't expect everything. You know, in other words, refuse to, <laughs> refuse to get off the field when a mistake is made against you. And on the other hand, exp- call the other side cheats if they don't walk. You know, that's the, the worst combination.
0: Sure. So that yeah. brings me to another interesting anecdote or a paragraph in the book where you go on explaining and the spirit of the game also applies to the groundsmen. How difficult yeah. is it for modern day groundsmen with the win at all culture that is so prevalent in every cricket nation how what's the balancing act for uh that well, job?
1: I have a very simple line that the groundsman's job is to is to create the best pitch he can for the game of cricket, in other words, a pitch that is good for batting, but not too good, not too easy. It gives the bowlers a chance at different stages of the game, the spinners towards the end usually, and the seamers often at the beginning. And that's some um, fair for a fair balance between batting, bowling, and not geared towards the home side. I think that's a form of cheating too. It's like saying, you know, and with with tours becoming shorter and with the challenge of so many domestic T20 competitions, so that not always the best teams are presented, you're getting more and more home wins because everything tends to favour the home side. And I'm very much against that. So I don't think, that I think the groundsman should tell people, you know, quite straightforwardly, it's none of their business if they start trying to get him to prepare a pitch that would suit the home team. And if the, if the groundsman is asked his opinion about, you know, in the course of a match by the opposition, he should give as honest an answer as he does the home team. He's, he's a presenter of, it's like, again, if you take the law of the land, the law is to make as fair a context as you can, a setting for a trial. The trial is the test, the test match. The groundsman's job is to make the best possible it's going to be different in different countries. It's going to turn more in India. It's going to bounce more in Australia. It's going to see more in England or swing more on the whole, you know. So those are those things you have to take for granted. They're real natural tendencies that are in the traditions and, and meteorology of each country. Uh, but um, given that, you give the, straight, the best pitch you can for the game.
0: Absolutely. No, I think most fans agree, even the most partisan in conditions, you want a good game of cricket instead of something, you know, conditions taking over in a manufactured way. So a few more questions before we let you go. Mm -hmm. So legendary Bradman quote to Greg Chappell, when cricket became a business, it's lost some of its character. While it is true business is important as well for the sport to flourish, that's the world we live in. Is there a balance agreement on this viewpoint from purists and modern fans, according to you?
1: yeah no it's, it, i i think there is a it, it is a bit tricky at times, and you' know, you don't want the tail wagging the dog and um, I think that you know if if you were to think of cricket in the thirties fifties sixties perhaps international cricket, you might well think of the british as as a sort of empire game, and there was you know a certain sort of You couldn't have a black captain in the West Indies until 1960, you know, when Frank Worrell was elected. Uh, You know, there was a snobbery, England and Australia, Gabby Allen and Don Bradman tended to run cricket between them. It was the Imperial Cricket Council to start with before it became the International Cricket Council, Conference and Council. Um, um, Towards the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st century, it, the risk was that it became a sponsor's game of cricket or a TV-run game of cricket, especially with with Indian, India's great expansion of TV revenues and sponsorship and so forth. And the, and the danger is, in each case, that the tail wags the dog, that the game of cricket loses out in its, what are the most important factors and the most central elements and most people have played international cricket and i've known many of them through the world cricket committee which i was chair of for six years or seven years six years and most people all of them would say the pinnacle of the game is test cricket and in 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 english county cricket they'd say the pinnacle of the game is the four-day competition Uh, but you know the 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 trouble is that uh, there's a lot to be said for one day cricket and even T20 cricket. There's a lot to be said for it, in my opinion. But the difficulty, the danger is that it's too easy to make money quickly. It's too easy to attract people to the Indian Premier League and other Premier Leagues, uh, which is to the detriment of international cricket. The administrators have not protected uh, test cricket as much as I think they might have done. So I think that it is under threat from that. Again, the best of the game. Absolutely. I'm not saying it's imminent threat. And I think a lot of test cricket is very, very good and, you know, just as good as it was in some ways better, but I think it's, um, it's threatened.
0: Sure. There's a risk. And in the book, you, you also explain how sport can affect life. And uh, this is a personal question. I never played organized cricket. I was always a huge fan, was consuming through TV commentaries of Tony Gregg, Harsha Bhogle. Richie Beno, mm-hmm. just learning the game, but never played at an organized level till my late 20s, early 20s when I moved to US. A bunch of Indian and Pakistanis guys got together and formed a team. And what I clearly struggled was that my knowledge of the game wasn't the same to those who have played or took coaching at academies back in India. So a couple of questions rolled into one. Can you learn something at a later age? Uh, and secondly, is cricket a reflection? How you play on the field is also They're big questions. Sorry, (laughs) just don't want to miss this opportunity.
1: I know, I know. Um, The second question, cricket is a part of life. Um, It's slightly set aside, you know, like other games or recreations or hobbies, things that are primarily hobbies, you know, like singing or dancing or music or theatre or, you know, it's, it's slightly set aside from the business of living one's life and making a living. It's set aside from one's health, prime, you know, in a main main way, you know, it's not a matter of life and death usually, we hope. Um, so one's character comes through. And one of the great things about sport and cricket in particular going on for a long time, individual contests within a team context, is it shows up character. And that a lot of the character that's shown up isn't what we consciously plan. It's what comes out of us, you know. So, yes, it is very closely related. On the other hand, having said that, um, I think you get some people who behave quite well as team members amongst other, let's say, mainly men or boys or men. I'm talking about male cricket. I know there's plenty of female cricket now, which is a very good thing. But male cricketers may become very decent sort of team players and go home and be... Scornful and dismissive to their wife, hit their children, kick the dog, and so on. So I don't think there's any guarantee that we're going to be the same. In a, you know, sometimes we can be at our best in our team context with other men, say. you know, and sometimes it just shows the person that we are all round. Sure. The other question was, can one learn it at a later age?
0: Yeah, I found okay. it a struggle to. I mean, I was more in awe of uh, some of my teammates. Can you unlearn something that you had been part of, uh, or basically your journey, and then you learn a new trade? Because,
1: yeah. Well, I think you can, but it's more difficult. I mean, it's like, like learning a language. You don't learn it quite as well if you learn it as a second language, even if you learn it very well. But I, and, and probably something shows of the original accent or the original <laughs> speech that you had.
0: All right, so, I think uh, your time is up. I could go on forever, but thank you very much for joining me in this conversation. I'm sure the That's listenership okay. here will learn a lot. And as you thank you, yeah,
1: it's a pleasure to me, and thank you for that.